Welcome to Willoughby Hills. I'm Heath Rosella. Glad to have you back for another episode. Thank you for joining me as always. My guest today is Bethany Bemis. Uh, she's a museum specialist at the Smithsonian, and she's an author as well. So we're going to talk today all about Disney, a topic that uh, I've talked a lot about on the show, certainly in the quarantine creatives days. Uh, but something that this is kind of a different angle on it, and it, it's one that interested me. So Bethany's book is called Disney Theme Parks and America's National Narratives, Mirror, Mirror for Us All. And the exhibit that she is uh, opening at the Smithsonian, it opens on April 28th at the National Museum of American History. It's called Mirror, Mirror, Reflections of America in Disney Parks. So what is this all about? <laughs> so basically, Bethany makes the case in the book that the stories that we tell ourselves as Americans and our understanding of American history, we often think of it as coming from a textbook or coming from a classroom, but that in fact, all of the things around us can impact our understanding of ourselves as a country, our understanding of our history, our understanding of our future. And Bethany makes the case that Disney in particular has been in a position really for the last 100 years to tell a story that is uniquely American and to alter our perception of our country for better or worse. Uh, she doesn't really come out on either side there, I guess, but is certainly aware that that Disney is a major influence on how we see our country. And if you look at the types of films that they made going back to the time when it was just a film studio, lots of things about kind of American tall tales and American frontierism, obviously things like Davy Crockett, but also they did animated stories about Johnny Appleseed and Pecos Bill and, you know, kind of big figures like that. And then going through the opening of Disneyland where there are, you know, Frontierland and Main Street USA, these different places that are meant to really evoke a certain type of American history and to get you to feel a certain way about American history. I was really excited to talk to Bethany and uh, excited for you to hear this conversation because this idea of American identity has been something that I've been wrestling with for the better part of a decade, I guess. I mean, going back to the days of producing Ask This Old House and feeling that I had an obligation to showcase all areas of the country. You know, I, I pushed for us to go to all 50 states with that show and really try to see the diversity of America, certainly, the different landscapes, different types of people, different cultures, different housing styles, all that, but also kind of where we intersect and, and where the sameness comes from. And, you know, just having a connection to somebody in Alaska or Hawaii that I might not have expected, you know, being somebody from Ohio and now living in Massachusetts. It's there, the American identity's there wherever you go, but it also feels like in the last several years, it's it's become kind of fractured and it's it's up for redefinition. And it is interesting sort of in reading Bethany's book and thinking about my own ideas around where America comes from and, you know, what, what it means to be American, just how much Disney did influence me. There's an interesting piece in this and we don't go into it in the interview today, but I've been thinking about it kind of afterwards. There is a certain definition of America that has been present in Disney parks for a long time and that is starting to be erased and changed. I think that's for that's for the good, but it also makes me think about just what was the version that I grew up in, you know, Splash Mountain, for example. 
it was the biggest ride when I was a kid. And, you know, I, I like dreamt about going on that. And I remember my first time just being so scared of it because I'd seen, you know, it was on Full House and <laughs> Boy Meets World. And like, I'd seen everybody on TV do it before I got there. And then kind of riding it and learning about the problematic history of the source material, a movie called Song of the South, which technically, I guess, takes place post-Civil War. But there's kind of questions about are the people in it freed slaves or are they still slaves or at any rate it's kind of depicting a a romanticized version of slavery that's sort of the critique so splash mountain is right there in the middle of Frontierland at walt disney world you grew up with that idea of like okay this is what the frontier or the old south or i don't even know it doesn't really fit i guess even thematically but at any rate it gives you this this kind of warped sense of what america was like or maybe it's maybe that's modern day Heath talking and America was that racist 150 years ago. And now we're kind of finally starting to move past that. I don't know. But I think in the same timing, you know, they had a, a hotel that opened in like the 80s or 90s called Dixie Landings. And it was these big, beautiful antebellum southern mansions was kind of half of it. And the other half were these rickety kind of cabins that they say are like, supposed to be fishing cabins but it it very much feels like when you're there like the plantations and the slave quarters and that resort has changed names now it's called riverside and they've tried to make it more kind of old new orleans themed but just like this stuff was around when i was a kid and just what does that do to shape my perception of what history meant and my place in it and all of that you know it's just it's something i've been thinking about And I think it's interesting that Bethany really explored this. And you'll hear it was a long process for her to get to this point and uh, to write this book and to get this show up. So I want you to hear her take on it because I think it's really cool. Before we go into that, though, let me just plug it one more time. The book is Disney Theme Parks and America's National Narratives, Mirror, Mirror for Us All. And the exhibit at the Smithsonian opens April 28th, the National Museum of American History in Washington. And the exhibit's called Mirror, Mirror, Reflections of America in Disney Parks. So a lot of interesting stuff. We're going to dive into it today. Here it is, my conversation with Bethany Bemis. You've had a busy last few months, I guess. You've got this book uh, that came out uh, in the last month or two, and then this exhibit that's opening at the Smithsonian at the same time at the National Museum of American History. They're both kind of intertwined, I guess. And I'm curious, the origin of sort of one, did, did one lead another or, you know, how did how did the idea for both of these come about? I started this line of inquiry, actually, while I was working on another exhibit at the museum. Um, it was an exhibit about American democracy. Okay. And it had a section on the national narrative and where people learn about how to be Americans and what that means and who gets to tell it. And while we were putting it up, I realized that for me, the answer was like, well, Disney tells like tells people how to be American, right? So from there, I sort of started doing a lot of the reading and things that sort of led to eventually the book. The reading led to an article. After I finished the article, it was like, I have all these other notes. Like I have to do something with this little bit of information that's in my head. And that sort of led to actually the thought to do the exhibit 
But you know, an exhibit is pretty small and it's uh, 80 words at a time. It's not a lot of information. So then I thought, well, I might as well pitch a book to somebody and just see if I can get all this information that I've now crammed into my head, you know, down on paper for other people. And how long from that exhibit on democracy to sort of where we are now with a book and an exhibit opening? What was that timeline like? That was about seven years. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's been a long time. <laughs> well, I'm I'm curious to dive into some of the subject of the book. I mean, I'm clearly I'm wearing a Mickey Mouse shirt today and didn't even think about it, it wasn't intentional for this interview. I just <laughs> I put it on this morning and then was like, oh, I guess that's that's appropriate for today's topic. On the theme. Um, but you start by exploring kind of Walt Disney and his filmmaking um, before getting into kind of the physical space of the parks. And what was interesting to me is like if I had been asked to contextualize Disney's work in his lifetime, in, in Walt Disney's lifetime, I may have gone the princess route or the European folktale route with, you know, Pinocchio and, and Snow White and things like that, or maybe artistic, you know, Fantasia, Bambi. But like in looking at, at your argument as to where patriotism kind of shows up in the Disney canon, that's right there too. It was almost like it was uncovering something that was right in front of me that I didn't really put the pieces together for, I guess, if that makes sense. Like I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> yeah, like that process for you of, of uncovering that and realizing that this was kind of a through line. What was that process like for you of, of uncovering that data? I think, I mean, it was similarly sort of surprising to me, right? I grew up during the, the Disney animation renaissance, so I was very much familiar with, you know, the, the princess route and, and those sorts of films. But, you know, I did a lot of reading of... um newspaper articles from that time period. And what people were picking up on at the time was how much they identified personally with Mickey Mouse. And I think for me and probably for a lot of, you know, fans and, and researchers today, the Mickey that we're familiar with is different from the Mickey that, you know, you got in the 20s and the 30s. He's, he's sort of the rougher edges have been smoothed a little bit and he's sort of more of a, a universal character. But the more I learned about these shorts and things that I hadn't watched growing up, you know, and now that we have Disney Plus, they're available to a lot more people. Sure. I, I hadn't made that connection because I think I hadn't, you know, I hadn't seen Steamboat Willie. It wasn't running before The Little Mermaid. Yeah, right. But it was the combination of that and then seeing how people were reacting, you know, when it came out and was brand new that I, um, I found really interesting that they really identified with Mickey on like a personal level. And some of this was sort of, I mean, the first Mickey cartoon, I think was 1928 or thereabouts. And so a lot of this was happening right as the depression was ramping up. And I mean, you talk about um, the three little pigs cartoon and who's afraid of the big bad wolf and just kind of how right in the zeitgeist that all was too. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think um, it might be bagger for Stephen Watts. I hope I'm not attributing this incorrectly to him, but um, who said that, you know, part of, Walt Disney's magic was that he always seemed to land exactly where the country needed him to be. And maybe that really is magical, right? I mean, that's not something that he necessarily planned, but, you know, he did it during the Depression. I think he does it during um, World War II, you know, with the shorts that come out then. And then he does it in the 50s with Disneyland. He always seems to be providing exactly what the country wants to, like, cling to to soothe its kind of to soothe the collective soul yeah. essentially there is something interesting too that i was thinking about of like you talk about mickey sort of standing in for you know buster keaton or some of these other characters at the time or kind of parodying what was in in the mainstream cinema i guess and it made me think of like bugs bunny and the looney tune cartoons and stuff and like 
they did a lot of that too. But I don't feel like there's that same reverence or you know putting up on a pedestal, I guess, for Bugs Bunny or Sylvester or whatever that there is for Mickey and Donald. And I wonder if that came up at all in your research in terms of why Mickey and why not some of these other cartoon characters that were contemporaries. I think that the their personalities, you know, the the Looney Tunes and like the really early Felix the Cat and things like that, they were not quite, I mean, today they're like kids cartoons, right? But I think that Mickey was a little more kid friendly um, when he first comes out in the way that he's not making light of, you know, the Buster Keaton comedies and things like that. But he's really sort of being reverent himself yeah. to what, you know, the values and things that those original sort of folktales were trying to hew to. And so I think both adults liked it and they liked it for their children. There's a little bit of, you know, kind of like I probably do today with my daughter, like I like Mickey. So here, you know, here's your Mickey experience. Yeah. And I think that it was just kind of pushed a little bit earlier um, than those other cartoons. That's interesting. Um, I think, too, about something that Disney has always done really well. And I say this both at Disney, the man Walt Disney, but the Disney Corporation is that they haven't been afraid to kind of peel back the curtain and tell their story. You know, there was a, a film, I think, in like the early 40s, The Reluctant Dragon, that sort of took people on this behind-the-scenes tour of, of the Disney studios. And then, obviously, Walt did that with the TV show in the 50s, and that's kind of continued to happen, that like when a new ride opens, it's here's all the imagineering that went into it. I wonder how much... Disney spinning their own narrative has played into sort of the place that we put them within our society. I mean, I think it definitely helped them, right? The fact that they get to tell their own story. I mean, you know, it's sort of um, Hamilton-esque, which I guess is now a Disney (laughs) (laughs) canon, right? Who lives, who dies, who tells her story, and ultimately who's deciding the narrative, you know, both about the Disney company and about America, which is sort of, you know, what I've been looking at in some ways, Disney in both instances. Yeah. But I think that the way that they let people sort of in on the making of their parks and their and their films is part of the way that we as a country feel like they are part of us in a way that many corporations are not, right? Mm. We feel like we have taken part in the building of Tron or, you know, we've been waiting the seven years or whatever for it <laughs> right. to come up. We feel personally attached to it in a way that, you know, I think of Coke as an American product, right? But I don't know how it's bottled or made or I don't feel that sort of growth along with that company that I think people do with Disney. Hmm. They probably don't want you to know in the case of Coke, you know, but that's interesting. Um, You talk a lot, too, about sort of the shift from Disney as a film studio to Disney as um, embodying physical entertainment, uh, you know, first with Disneyland and then obviously with with parks beyond that. But I'm curious, sort of your take on the importance of having a physical location, how that changes being able to walk through Disneyland in 3D space versus, you know, sitting in your cinema in your local small town and watching a movie as you would have in the, you know, the 40s or 50s. Like, what's the difference between actually being there? How does that change? the experience. I mean, I don't think that the importance of the of the physical parks to Disney's sort of cultural influence today can be overstated. Yeah. Because as through the engaging of each one of our senses, the impression that they leave on us mentally and emotionally grows exponentially. I think I talk about this in the in the section on the parks in the book that 
you know, once you have that physical experience of Disneyland or, or Disney World, other places where you go will then remind you, like, you, re- you remember Disney, right? Someone had written this whole blog about how they'd been walking through a park, like, near their house, and they smelled this one specific smell, and they were like, I know that smell, I know that smell, and eventually I think they placed it as, like, you know, the, the waterfront near Frontierland. It was very specific, right? But again, it's like the imprint that it leaves on us is so much more powerful because it's all of the senses as opposed to just sort of, you know, the nice visuals and maybe like the the songs, right? Now you can have the song from when you're walking through, the visual from when you saw the film, the visual from when you're in the park, the scent of the popcorn, the feel of the blister that you got on your foot when you were walking 10,000 steps or whatever. And all of those things together make it something that's just unforgettable. That's interesting. And I wonder, like, when you're talking about that and, and the smell this person was, was smelling near their house, like, presumably that might not be a Disney thing, too. I mean, it could be the the cedar tree that happens to be growing in Frontierland or something, right? Like, it, yeah. there are certainly intentional things that are being done to us in the parks, but there are things that we can kind of make our own connections and build our own stories. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the, the criticisms that the parks get from sort of academia is, how controlled they are, right? And how they explicitly tell their own narrative. But my sort of critique of that critique is that that leaves out the personal experience that we all bring with us to the park. Some of that is from, you know, our experiences with the films and things that we have before we come. But some of that is from just the lives that we live every day. And I don't think that that everything that that Disney's experience gives us has to be intentional for it to still be powerful, right? Florida weather, let's say, is not exactly the same as what you would have experienced in an old Western frontier town, right? But it might be that that's kind of how we think of it. If most of your experience with an old Western frontier town is in Florida, that's not necessarily bad. It just is. And I think that it's, it's interesting to think about how that you know, impacts now how we how people think about like what the old West was. Yeah. And and you talk about this in the book relative to to Main Street and, and Liberty Square and Frontierland, you know, all these different lands that kind of you get this composite image of, you know, Liberty Square, for example, you talk about it's it's the old North Bridge in Concord, but it's also Philadelphia, but it's also Boston, but it's, you know, it's kind of all these different colonial things meshed into one idea. But like when I think of the comparisons you make to, you know, the Smithsonian or or the National Mall or Williamsburg or, you know, something like that, the one piece where I get hesitant is when there is an attempt at a historical representation, usually there's historians that are, are very careful in how they're presenting things, I guess. And I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe this is something you looked at in the book, but like I feel like in the context of Disney, that's often more in the hands of artists than in the hands of historians. And to your point of kind of you remember the swamp version of the Old West more than, you know, the dry heat of Texas or something like it is a different thing. Right. Having having an artist interpret that versus a historian. And like, what does that do to sort of our version of of what the past is? Well, that's the big question, right? I think that what it does is it puts the emphasis less on, you know, the the historical authenticity of the little details. Although we do get a lot of little details, right? At Liberty Square, I mean, I'm sure that you've, you know, gone on and on about how we have the lights in the tower and this, that, and the other, and the mud and sewage on the side of the street. 
but it it takes the emphasis off of those facts and puts it more on the emotional component of the time period, which is what I think really drew Walt Disney to these time periods that he decided to portray. Yeah. You know, he was known as a very patriotic guy. He really believed in liberty, independence, et cetera, et cetera. And I think going into building that land and all the lands, it's less about historical authenticity, although we know they do research to do that, and more about does this piece of authenticity add to the feeling that we're trying to evoke here of independence, of rugged individualism, you know, of optimism on Main Street or the future in Tomorrowland. And I think that that can be good, right? For some people, I think that it can also, you know, skew your understanding of maybe what it was like for the average everyday person living in Liberty Square, in quotes, you know, um, or the frontier land sort of town in that it's only going to emphasize the positive feelings and positive values that came out of that time, which is not unlike what we sort of do as a country with our official narratives, right? Mm. We generally don't talk about, um, you know, the divisiveness that we experienced during the revolution or the experiences of, you know, the lower class or people of color at the time who maybe bought into some of the independence, but maybe were really busy with other things at the time, you know, at the time um, that they're dealing with this. My sort of hope for like people who read the book, people who go to the exhibit, people who experience Disney is not to say that that's, you know, a bad thing, but just to say that it's interesting to think about what the flip side might be or what is left out of the fun experience that we're enjoying while we're, you know, at the park. Yeah. I I wonder too, just in thinking about uh, like, Taking Frontierland for an example, like there are kind of versions of that, of kind of an old West town in in Six Flags Parks at Cedar Point at Knott's. Like, I don't think anybody would make the argument. I, 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 I would hard, I find it hard to believe that the Smithsonian would put on an exhibit uh, based on Six Flags Old West Town or, you know, something like that. Like, I just I, I, I feel like. And maybe it's just because I self-select into it, but I'm like, I buy your argument and I, I kind of agree that like, okay, the Disney parks have helped shape our national narrative, but kind of what is the difference between Frontierland and, mm-hmm. you know, my local Six Flags or or Cedar Point or something? Like, what? why is it that Disney works in the way that it does and, and has this effect of kind of shaping history? I think that, you know, beyond the popularity, which it kind of, already had from when Mickey was the most popular film star in the world. The partnership with the federal government that comes during World War II and then later with the parks really sort of lends this air of legitimacy to what Disney does. Disney, as in Walt, has a relationship with Nixon, Richard Nixon, you know, just from virtue of being in California. And that leads to Richard Nixon as the sitting vice president visiting Disneyland right after it opens, getting a key to the park in a very public way that I think sends the message almost, this is like, this is our American theme park. This is our official theme park. Yeah. And then ever since then, um, with the exception of two presidents, every president that's been alive since Disneyland has opened has visited the park at some point in their political lifetime, you know, in a way that they're not doing for your local Six Flags or even knots. I mean, some of them, you know, have gone to knots as well, but not in the same numbers. Yeah. 
And I think that that really sets Disney apart. Gotcha. I want to ask you, too, a lot of your argument about sort of the role of, of Disney in influencing kind of the American psyche. A lot of it is based on the building blocks that Walt put into place. And again, the frontier line, Main Street, you know, these kind of lands and things like that. I do think there's been a shift in the last decade or so, kind of away from these umbrella lands that can sort of encompass lots of different ideas or can, you know, have modules for rides that can kind of change out more towards these ideas of themed areas, you know, Pandora or Star Wars or, or different things like that. And sort of an emphasis, I guess, too, on, on synergy with the film studio. And I wonder just as those, I mean, you can call it just a different business philosophy or, or business reality or, you know, whatever it is, but whatever's driving that change, does that change the Disney Parks place within the American narrative? Or does it say something about sort of where we are as a country right now, perhaps? You know, I haven't done a lot of work on like Animal Kingdom or Hollywood Studios as of yet. Um, so mostly I'm looking at Magic Kingdom, right? And I think the sort of IP creep, if that's what you you know want to call it, is like just starting yeah. in Magic Kingdom more so that it has in other lands. But what I'm noticing about it is that it's really geared towards adding characters that are bringing a level of diversity to the park that, you know, it's sort of been lacking in the in the last 60 years. And I think that that says more about where we are as a country than the Disney company itself, right? I think that there's a real desire on the part of the people who are buying tickets to visit the park to see themselves represented. And, you know, I don't I don't have the data to back this up, but my guess is that one of the easiest and quickest ways for Disney to accommodate that is to use their existing IP, right? Yeah. Plus, it's just like a nice business synergy kind of situation. Yeah, but but it does kind of, I guess, when you build a Pandora or something, and I know you said this isn't something you've looked at as closely, but like, it's not based on that kind of same American narrative, I guess. You know what I mean? Like, it's, <laughs> it's a, I guess, both in the case of, of Star Wars and Pandora, but a lot of the other things they're building now, too. It's not the kind of folklore piece of it. It's... um it's filmic folklore, but it's not American history in the same way that like the American adventure you talk a lot about at Epcot, you know, the yeah. the show with Mark Twain. And I'm just thinking, I guess, about where the your argument about reflecting American culture and vice versa, that, you know, the parks reflect where we are and, and we see ourselves in the parks. It's interesting thinking about it as you're talking, you know, talking it through that what it really says to me is, again, if you if you step back from you know, Magic Kingdom's like historical influences and you just think about what values the lands represent. The Pandora land and a lot of Animal Kingdom is really focused on conservation, earth optimism, things like that, which I also think reflects sort of where the country is going. Yeah. You know, whether that's part of what influenced the popularity of the film or whether it was just the, you know, James Cameron special effects, <laughs> you know, that I don't know. And I think that with things like Star Wars, I mean, the, that film canon, you know, is very grounded in sort of that Cold War 50s patriotism underdog. You know, all those all those little values that we kind of ascribe to being an American are still there, mm. but they're being driven not by historical stories. I mean, right, but by stories right, that right. we are making up now that will, I guess, eventually become, you know, foundational myths 
possibly. Right. Yeah, yeah. And that, I hadn't really considered that, but that is kind of, it's American Revolution too, I guess, of these, you know, kind yeah. of underdog rebels going against this big imperial for you know, yeah. You could we love an underdog, like everybody loves an underdog. It's true. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, you talk a lot, obviously, about sort of how the parks reflect America and shape American narrative. I'm curious, you talk a little bit about Epcot in there too, um, but not as much about World Showcase and kind of the, the international piece of it. And just, it is interesting you talk about like more people going to the Magic Kingdom than the National Mall and things like that. Like, I, I, I don't know the data, but my guess is there's probably a lot more people, a lot more Americans going to, you know, Epcot China than real China or, you know, Epcot France Definitely. than real France. Like, I wonder just sort of what your thoughts are on sort of the interpretation of other countries and, and America's place in the world. I mean, America's right there at the dead center of, of World Showcase, too. And just what the construction of Epcot and, and the layout of Epcot and what, what does that say about sort of where Disney sees us and, and conversely how we see ourselves, I guess. So I think that, um, you know, the the sort of concentric circle of World Showcase putting America at the middle is a very American way to think of ourselves. Right. I mean, it makes sense because obviously we're physically actually hosting these lands. So um, I get it. But we're also sort of the most like imposing of the structures there. Yeah, right. You know, which, again, for for better or worse, is a very American way to think of ourselves. Um, I don't have hard data, um, but anecdotally, I think that the way that Disney presents the countries um, to the people visiting really does influence how we think about them. Because I think you're absolutely right. If you're going to spend however many thousand dollars on a vacation you why fly to china it takes forever you could just fly to disney visit all the countries in one day and be done yeah you know but i think that that also sort of goes back to walt and his interest he's always been interested in showing different cultures and i mean obviously from sort of his own american perspective but yeah I, i'm interested to see sort of how and if world showcase feels different in the sort of new epcot you yeah. know, that they're envisioning right. and what and what that means, you know, especially given the sort of global political moment that we find ourselves in. Yeah. Right. You mentioned the new Epcot. And th that was one of my other questions, too, is uh, kind of you talk in the book about the, the optimism of the future and Tomorrowland in Magic Kingdom and Disneyland, but also future world at Epcot. What's interesting to me of kind of the early iterations of future world uh, back in, you know, 1982 when, when the park opened was there was a lot of cooperation with the big kind of industrial players at the time, GM, Exxon, Kodak, you know, all these big companies, the kind of companies that are, you know, the Fortune 500 or Fortune 100 or whatever today, you know, Apple, Google, Facebook, they don't have a presence anymore. That's not sort of where we are uh, in terms of representing industry. You know, they, they don't sponsor pavilions and, and probably never will. And as part of that, there's this change to from what was Future World and what was supposed to be kind of this World's Fair idea to three separate lands, World Celebration, World Nature, and World Discovery. And we talk some about just the infusion of characters into that, Guardians of the Galaxy, uh, Finding Nemo, Moana. Like, I'm curious sort of what you think about that change and just sort of what's changed in the last 40 years going from Future World and this kind of future optimism to more of a, a playground feel, I guess. That's not to diminish it, but you, but you know what I mean. It's not. Yeah. It, it's not a museum anymore. Which I think you could make the argument that Future World was. It was a. It was an amusement park, but it was these kind of moving museum exhibits that you were 
you know, riding vehicles through and seeing dioramas and things. Yeah. I mean, it was meant to showcase, you know, the best of American industry in a way that, you know, Tomorrowland at, at Disneyland in its original form really was as well, right? You had exhibits from Monsanto and, and some paint company. I can't even remember at this point. Oh, maybe DuPont um, or someone like that, maybe. Yeah, there, there was a whole bunch of them. Yeah. And the Carnation milk people. Right. Um, it, and it was very much this idea which sort of fit with, with Walt Disney's like personal ethos, right? That companies, corporations could do good in the world and also help him build his dream by sponsoring, you know, and helping him fiscally. And so you saw that sort of roll over into Epcot, you know, and in ways that I think you can debate and, you know, Twitter will obviously, um, whether it was a successful sort of amusement park transition or not. But it, it's fascinating to me. And then obviously, you know, you have to wait to see how it how it totally pans out. But it's fascinating how we've gone from corporations and American inventions will continue to make life better and better and better and better and um, improve things for us all to conservation and like preserving nature. It feels a little bit like a complete switch. Yeah. Well, it's what you were saying earlier, too, about Animal Kingdom, right? That, like, this is yeah. kind of, it's it's where the zeitgeist is right now, too. Yeah. But I also think in some ways that it feels to me more like Walt's original idea for Epcot in the sense that it feels more collaborative, not in its creation, but, you know, he's he's originally envisioning people sort of living here and each individual contributing to make it what it is. And it wasn't about sort of corporations. It was about the people that lived there. Uh, and I'm interested to see if we get a little bit of that feeling back when the new lands are completed, that it's more about, you know, the the theme park guests and sort of their individual contributions to this larger experience than it is, you know, GE's ride. Right, right. Um, you talked a little bit there about Walt's kind of original vision for Epcot, and I want to dig into that a little bit, too. Um, just for, for people listening that don't know, this was sort of as Walt Disney was dying, he had a whole vision for a, a futuristic city where, you know, there were going to be all sorts of modes of public transit and cars buried underneath and, you know, I think a dome in the center that could kind of, you know, climate controlled shopping. And he was he was planning a city for that site originally, not an amusement park. I guess the question to you, Bethany, is just Walt as an urbanist. And thinking about him in the context of, you know, being friends with Robert Moses, who, you know, put expressways all over New York City. Like, he comes out of a time being close with Eisenhower, who passed the, the Highway Act in, you know, in the 50s. Like, he comes from a very autocentric time, but was pushing in a way that not a lot of other people were in the 60s for a very different kind of urbanism. And it's one that I feel like we're starting to kind of wake up to today. But like... Getting back to this idea of like who influences who, like the Disney monorail ended up in pieces and parts becoming the Las Vegas monorail and the the people mover that they built at Disneyland, you know, which Walt wanted to showcase as like this transport of the future ends up, you know, in uh, I think it's in Houston airport or Dallas. It's in one of the Texas airports, I think. And like uh, maybe. Yeah. And I think it's the train under the Capitol building too, like to go from the congressional offices to the uh, Capitol. Like, yeah. there is this kind of two-way street of, like, Walt saw his parks as as an incubation space for making our cities better and wanted to build a full city. And, like, where do you see him playing into sort of 
the conversation now around suburbanization and and how we build, what density we should be building houses at, or the role of public transit, you know, all these different debates that are kind of happening right now. I mean, you know, I don't want to speak for someone who's been caught for (laughs) 70 years, but, you know, given the way that he that he was, even though, as you said, sort of he gets this this reputation today, you know, he's remembered for sort of his like political conservatism. Yeah. But in reality, a lot of the things that he did were very progressive. I think that he would be like way ahead, even of probably where Disney is today, right? Because I think he'd be less concerned with sort of the business side, right, of making a profit off of the theme parks and what they could be doing, like you said, to make our cities better. I don't know enough about sort of what technologies are like emerging out there right. for for today's living. But I, I definitely have a feeling that, that they would be in the parks in some way, right, if Walt had anything to say about it. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, just kind of on the urbanism point, too. There was this this tweet that kind of blew up on Twitter a few weeks ago where um, somebody had said something to the extent of, like, suburbanites like going to Disney because it's walkable places. And, you know, I, I've I've been thinking about that idea and just sort of, like, the places that we like at Disney, I think, as fans, Main Street, Hollywood Boulevard, the boardwalk, like a lot of the experience is kind of going to these walkable small towns, if you will, even if the only business in them is, you know, a Disney souvenir shop, like just kind of experiencing that small town life that isn't as prevalent anymore, but was a hundred years ago. There's kind of all these different iterations of that at Disney parks. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. I'm curious, just sort of your take on like why people like Disney and and how much just the walkability, I guess, and like being able to, I don't know, the the resonance of urban spaces, I guess, within this kind of very sprawling resort complex. Yeah. I think that it's, it's less about walkability and urbanization and more about safety. Mm, Interesting. Because I couldn't, you know, I live sort of in a suburban area, but I could go to a, a city pretty quickly and walk around. And just because it's walkable doesn't always feel like it's safely walkable, right? There's cars going here, there and everywhere, or there's, you know, crowds going in the other direction, or I don't know where I am. And, you know, <laughs> I've lost. And Disney's eliminated most of those concerns, right? You can always figure out where you're going, where you need to go. There's no traffic or if you know the train car is coming they will clearly let you know and get you out of the way yeah and so i think that i think that it's less about just being able to walk there and more about being able to walk there without all of these other concerns weighing on you that let you experience it and feel it in a different way than you do walking around a real city yeah i mean that brings to mind though when you talk about safety you know there aren't homeless people, obviously, at Disney or crime. If it's going to happen, there there's security everywhere and things like that. Uh, part of it, I guess, what you're saying there is the difference between public and private space, too. And like, I'm curious, Disney is obviously a, it's a private enterprise and you have to pay to get in and things. So there's already that barrier to entry. But that barrier kind of continues to creep up year after year. And what was, you know, in our childhood, kind of a middle class rite of passage mm-hmm. is now for a lot of middle class families really a splurge. And, you know, it's it, it feels like they're kind of deliberately targeting a higher income audience. What do you think the effect of that, just getting back to kind of your main thesis, I guess, about the role of, you know, Disney and, and uh, American culture and things like when you have a large portion of the population that can't go there or that can only go there 
once a decade or, you know, once a childhood. What does that do to sort of Disney's role in in how we think about ourselves as Americans? I think it ends up, you know, and again, I mean, we'll have to see how that bears out, but I think it makes it more aspirational and less sort of a, a reflection of where we are. Um, and I think if you're an economist, which I'm not, um, you could make the argument that that also reflects sort of the classic American dream uh, and how people feel about it right now, right? That it's become a little more aspirational and not something that um, is guaranteed to every middle class child, you know. So, so for better or worse, it's still reflecting the the American sort of zeitgeist in that way. You know, I'm sure that you saw the study that came out that said the people most likely uh, to report wanting to visit a Disney park within the next year were people in sort of the lowest income brackets. Yeah. And I think that that reflects both its status as something that's aspirational, but also as something that is comforting, right? We talked about the sort of safety of it. And I think that there is still this feeling that like, if you can provide a Disney trip for your children, that you are doing okay. Yeah. Right. Like you're, you're giving them something that, that others have or that, that your kids deserve. And like, it's like, we're all going to be okay because I can do this one thing for my family. Yeah. No, that makes sense. It, it, when you say that too, about just reflecting sort of where we are, I think about just, you know, people are, are getting married later and buying houses later and having kids later. And, you know, all of those realities are at least partially economically driven. I think, you know, it, it's a lot harder to afford a house than it was you know, 40 years ago. <laughs> and so, yeah, right. You're going to save more for a house and save more for your Disney vacation. It's, it's true. Um, I'm curious too, just there was one thing that I, I kind of expected you to cover in the book um, and, and you didn't. And I'm curious if it was sort of an omission on your part or just sort of where it fits in. But um, when we talk about Disney's role in kind of reflecting history or shaping history, um, there was this canceled amusement park uh, in, in Northern Virginia uh, called Disney's America that the original goal was that it was going to be kind of a, a smaller regional park, I guess. This is like in the early 90s and was going to represent different eras of American history and, and sort of be a place where history could come alive. And again, it was supposed to be near enough to D.C. that like people could go to the kind of national monuments and, and Smithsonian and, and things like that, and then spend a day at a Disney park as well. And it ended up being uh, kind of killed by by local opposition, and, and a lot of historians came out against it. But that, to me, felt like it could have been a whole chapter in your book. And I'm curious sort of if, if that had crossed your mind, and, and if it did, why it didn't end up in, in kind of the final version. I mean, yeah, I think that that like, deserves its own book, yeah. right? The public response to thinking that Disney could tell our history when I would argue that, in fact, they already do. Right. You know, and most of the people that I've talked to, like you said, you know, said that the reason that it was killed was was because they chose the wrong location for it. Right. The place they wanted to build it was mostly populated by sort of wealthy individuals who had retired to the country and wanted it to stay that way. We have actually some materials at the museum, not from Disney themselves, but that are both pro Disney's America and anti Disney's America. And I think that one day that would be really interesting to go into for purposes of this book. It was just outside of yeah the scope of, of what I was doing. But the the there's there's so much to get into there. I think that you also sort of might need some access to company records that the, the public doesn't necessarily have to mm. get full story and really accurately represent sort of what their thoughts were on how you know what it was going to be. 
which I'd love to do. Somebody has that. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's it's such a fascinating piece. And it's it's something I've only learned about in the last couple of years. And like, you know, I, I was too young when it was happening to have any awareness of it. And I think without the internet, too, there, you know, it's interesting just how, how people got their information back in the day, because oh, yeah. you were fed whatever the, the national media was telling you, and it was harder to, to go off into your own you know, area of interest, perhaps, and and dive deep if you wanted to. But um, I, I guess the last question is sort of thinking about all this work that you've done and getting people to see the the parks differently or to to consider them perhaps more critically. Is that a lens that you want people? looking at the parks through when they're on a vacation necessarily like how would it feel to you if somebody said oh my gosh like my eyes were open while I was there or like for you even I guess like are you able to turn it off and just enjoy your vacation or like when you know your kids want to go on a ride are you like wait hold on let's look at that detail over there and what that you know like I'm, I'm just curious sort of yeah where being critical uh plays into you know having a good time yeah I think um one I still I visit the Disney parks as often as I can. I love them. And part of that, I think, comes from, you know, being someone who um, likes history and likes theme spaces and just being able to put yourself in another place. Um, so, so I've always loved them. And what I think I want people to get out of it is not that you have to walk around thinking like that's telling me this or that's, you know, inaccurate or whatever. I think just understanding that we get our, our knowledge of of American identity and who we are from more places than just our schools and our, you know, saying the pledge every day. I don't think that it's, you know, everyone's responsibility to sort of analyze it as it happens, um, but just knowing that it happens. But I think, too, that there's, you know, among fans and other people who visit the Disney parks, there's a sense of sort of loving criticism. If we know that Disney sort of reflects where we are as a country, then it does matter to us, right, what they do as I you know, would argue happened with sort of um, Pirates of the Caribbean. If eventually it becomes clear that the way that the Disney parks are representing a group or an individual is out of step with what the rest of us feel, you know, that it's incumbent on us to sort of say that in a lovingly critical way, yeah. <laughs> just as you do sort of with your children. All right, there we go. Bethany Bemis. What do you think about that? Definitely some uh, some things to think about. And as I said in the intro, stuff that I've been thinking about ever since she and I talked. I hope you'll check out Bethany's book. It is really, really a good read. Disney Theme Parks and America's National Narratives, Mirror, Mirror for Us All. And her exhibit opens at the National Museum of American History in Washington on April 28th. It's called Mirror, Mirror, Reflections of America in Disney parks. That sounds fascinating as well. I hope you'll check it out. Hey, before we go, I got to just say, if you are a fan of the podcast and you're not yet reading my newsletter, we got to fix that. We got to get you on the list. Go to heathrasella.com slash newsletter. You can sign up there. I publish twice a week, every Wednesday and every Sunday. And if you're a super fan of both the newsletter and the podcast, you should become a paying member of Willoughby Hills. You will get podcast episodes before anybody else. They come out for members on Mondays right now and general public on Thursday. But you also get some really cool bonus posts. I just did a video last week for members only looking at a roadside restaurant in Concord, Massachusetts. Looks like the most unremarkable building you've ever seen. But it turns out it has about an 85-year history and has a lot to do with the history of roadside America 
And it actually ties into the housing picture here in 2023 as well, which is kind of an unexpected detour, but it's all in there for members only. And I also did a post this past Sunday, just for members, a bonus photo gallery of uh, roadside signs. I wrote a piece on Sunday about roadside signs and members got a whole other photo gallery beyond what was in the newsletter. So if you're interested in upgrading, go to heathrosala.com slash newsletter and become a paying member of Willoughby Hills today. Hey, I would love it if you would leave a five-star review in Apple and subscribe in your favorite podcast app. That'd be awesome. And uh, I'll be back in two weeks. I will talk to you soon. Until then, stay safe.